Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God and His Righteousness. I changed all kinds of pages at preparing you. I've added to them and expanded them and everything. One of them was Idiotis, which was about the registration of people in a system of social welfare set up by Herod and the Pharisees. And it tells us in the Bible that some of the apostles were not registered. They were not of that world. They, they were not participating in that system of social welfare by the the state uh, of Herod. And of course, eventually there would be Romans who would convert to Christianity and they would not be members of the system of social welfare through the temple of Rome. There were a number of temples. Some of them were responsible for social welfare. Others were like investment brokerages you know, they funded the military sometimes uh, through one of the temples, the Temple of Janus. And, uh, but the Temple of Jupiter and the Parthenos, they often had to do with welfare. And they often had golden statues. Temple of Janus, I don't believe that that had a golden statue, but that was a very interesting temple. It didn't really have a regular building in there originally. It was just this walled-in area with two gates. And, of course, the temple of Janus. Janus was this god with two faces. And, you know, one faced one gate, one faced the other gate, theoretically. Well, what, what were these two gates? Well, when they went up north to mine gold in what we know today as Spain, they had to have a lot of money to go up there to even start the project. They had to have troops and uh, soldiers and wagons and animals to go up there. And, of course, the, the troops were to keep them safe because they were going up into an area where they could be attacked. And one of the ways to prevent them from being attacked is to have a lot of guys with sharp things, <laughs> a lot of uh, soldiers with sharp things and uh, shields and know how to use them and and so they went up there and they literally mined a whole mountain out of existence. And this was funded by monies that came in, not only monies, but sometimes materials. Whatever you brought in the one gate that you were investing in this project to go up and mine this gold mine up there in Spain, which could actually include trade goods. Things that would be valuable up there because they were going to enlist the help of the locals rather than fight them, you know, and try to, you know, make everybody work for them and try to enslave the locals, which were probably Celts, some some group of Celts. And uh, so they, th rather than make them uh, go and... Uh, be a part of this uh, uh, this 
plan to mine the mountain, they hired them. They traded goods with them so that they would be able to do that. And uh, they liked it because they were getting things from the Romans they, they didn't have. Romans made things. Romans traded along you know, the Mediterranean. And so they could get access to things that you just couldn't get up there in Spain. And so they enlisted the help of chiefs of the tribes up there. And they said, okay, if you guys have workers that come, we'll build a dam. And they built a dam and they backed up water. And and then they channeled. Eventually they were digging a channel while they were building the dam and backing up the water. And then they channeled the water from this raised elevation from this dam that they built. And it went down through these sluices. And it went into caves that they were already digging. They were digging little tiny caves right through the mountain. And then the water would go out through another cave. And then they would make another cave or they would dig away. But the water they were bringing down, so they were literally raising the height of the river. So that the river came to that mountain at a higher level. You could actually do this up the, we have a local river, Chihuacan River, and there were gold mines along that river. I've actually gone into some of those gold mines that were along the river. And somebody dug in to the side of the mountain and dug out dirt and they hauled it down to the river and panned it down there by the river. And they got a lot of gold during the Depression. And some of the mines were better than others. But it was all about digging into the side of the mountain. Well, the the Romans, they were a lot more clever than that. They they had this engineering mine. They had moved water into Rome with long aqueducts and into Jerusalem with these aqueducts. And everybody was amazed at their skill and their measuring uh, and surveying areas. Well, they were moving the river into the mountain, into these caves, and out the other side would come mud and slurries of rock. And those slurries of rock, they would run them down these other chutes that they were making, cutting down trees, splitting them, and building these sluices with bars across them or cutting out these areas where the mud would flow through and they would catch it. They would catch the mud and the heavier, the gold, would go down into these little grooves. And guys would come along and scoop out those grooves. And now they they would take those grooves down and, you know, what was in those grooves and then they would pan that. And so they had a whole system to do this. And they mined whole mountains out of existence. So the mountains were just literally gone by the time they were done. And probably changed the course of the river way down and all this stuff. But they came back with lots and lots of gold and they brought that gold back into the other gates at the Temple of Janus. And somebody was keeping track of how much everybody invested. Some people invested time. Some people went up there and they just said, well, we'll work for a share of the gold. You know, they they get fed while they were up there. They would get, you know, they would be protected along with everybody else or they would provide the protection because they needed they needed soldiers. And the soldiers were common with, with working with creating bulwarks and things like that to protect them when they set up camp. So they were all working together. Very organized people, the Romans. 
And they came back with tons of gold. And that gold came back in the temple of Janus. And everybody who had invested in this project of mining this mountain up there in Spain got a share of the gold. They got a share of the value of the gold. They might get it in silver if, you know, they didn't have a big investment. But whatever profit they made, everybody would share in that profit. We did the same thing with ships for years and years. Back in the 1400s. You can go back to, you know, 300, 400 AD, even into the BC. Ships coming out of Ephesus would go out and they had a fishing enterprise. Where they would go out and fish and bring back, you know, saltwater fish from the Mediterranean. And sell them in the markets. And if you invested in that ship, the captain would get a share, the first mate would get a share, the seaman would get a share. And the guys who owned the boat would get a share of whatever they produced. If they were hauling merchandise and they made a profit, they would get a share. Very complicated system, or complex anyway. They all knew how it worked. Still today, you can go up and go fishing up in Alaska. And you you may be guaranteed a wage, but it will be very low wage. But you'll also be offered a share Of the profits. You catch a lot of fish. Sell them for a good price. Everybody gets a share. Of course the captain gets the bulk. The owner of the ship gets the bulk. The the, the first mate. He'll get a big share. And all. But all the seamen will get a share too. They did this even. When we had the war with England. and, And England had the war with France. Or with Spain. They would take the cargo. Of the ships they took. John Paul Jones was doing this. He he would take the cargo of the ships of the English that he took on the seas. And he would get a big lion's share of that. And then his men would get a, a share too. And if you were successful for two years at sea, even a whaler, two years at sea, you might come back with enough money to buy a a pub or a small inn or maybe a small farm. If you weren't successful, well, you'll go to sea again and try again. <laughs> so, but this this has been around for a long time. That's capitalism. That And it worked. It worked really well with Rome. They were really good capitalists. But, you know, about a hundred years before the birth of Christ, they got an idea... Let's have a little socialism. Let's, let's have the government, the profits that the government makes, it will pay it out to the poor and the needy of society and win their favor of the mob. And of course that's what democracy is. Of course Rome was originally a republic. So why are we talking about this instead of John 2? Because we were going to talk about John 2 this afternoon. Because that's setting the scene of what was going on in Rome. What was going on in Judea? What was going on in Corinth? What was going on in Galatia? And what was going on in Ephesus? They had a very complex system of money and trade. And and the temples provided, you know, like I said this morning when we did John 1, the Temple of Mineta. Minted coins. That's where we get the word money. (laughs) From the god Mineta. 
because they minted coins in that government temple, government building. And, you know, sometimes they were minting the coins of Caesar. But other people could have coins minted. You didn't have to just be Caesar. You know, a province might, you know, there there were some towns that were mining towns. And a lot of times, because the Roman centurions went a lot of these places, when they retired, and they all retired with a pension, they probably wouldn't have to work again. 20 years in service, you get a pension from Rome. As long as Rome stood, you would get this pension. Sometimes it was late, and there was a little bit of upset centurions. But the the idea that you, you serve for 20 years straight, or as an officer, I think it was only about 18 years, and then you would get a pension. If you Eventually, if you weren't a Roman and you got into the Roman army, you would get Roman citizenship. Might get less of a pension, but you'd get something. But if you saved your money while you were in there, and if you profited, you know, like, you know, you conquered Gauls, and, of course, Caesar gets the lion's share, and but the soldiers get a share of that too because they're risking their life. Well, they get enough of a share, then when they retire, they will buy land and they were buying land in other cities. They would go places where they had maybe conquered the area and there was a lot of land, there were a lot of farms that were around and they would go in and they would actually sometimes, instead of getting a big lump sum, they would get a portion of the land. And they would say, well, I want to be up in this area. I want to be over in this area. And they would go over and settle that. So you would have these towns that were full of retired centurions. And they had a regular check coming in. And they had money. And it's built up the city. But they were also fairly defended because you know they were retiring at 40 years of age. Centurions lived longer than almost any other profession. As a matter of fact, most centurions never pulled their sword in battle. That was an amazing statistic. They they all knew how to work. They all did regular calisthenics, you know, for training to keep in shape. They had pretty steady diets because the army moves on its stomach. But they had the longest lifespan of almost any other profession. But they also understood money. They understood other languages. And they understood camaraderie. And so when you had, you know, 300, 400 cent- retiring centurions, or maybe only maybe 50 retiring at first, and then others that knew them when they came to retirement, they're going to go up with their buddies and get land up there. So this is creating quite a dynamic throughout the Roman Empire of Roman centurions. And now that little key of, now you can imagine what kind of people were settling in some of these places. Corinth was one of those cities that had been absolutely leveled to the ground, raised to the ground by a Caesar years before. You know, almost, uh, I'd say about 150 A.D. They had just leveled Corinth. 
and, and the armies of Corinth and the people, and they killed most of the men, and they sold the women and children into slavery, and they, of course, took the prophet. And they did this because Corinth was doing some bad things. And we know a lot about what Corinth was doing and, and what was changing in Rome because of a Corinthian, which is Polybius. Polybius was a Corinthian. And the first time that Corinth did some bad things, Polybius was a hostage held by Rome. He was, he, he was really a smart guy. He was revered in Corinth as really a smart guy, a historian of historians. And so he was well treated by the Romans, but he had to stay in Rome. It was kind of like, if you guys pull anything, we got Polybius. And they had a lot of other people that they took kind of as hostages. But Corinth did it again, and so Rome went and leveled it. Well, just shortly before Jesus was born, Caesar, Julius Caesar, decided we need that town of Corinth rebuilt. It's a very important strategic place. And we've talked before why it was so strategic. Because it was right on a trade route. It was a trade route of ships could stop at one point in the Aegean Sea. And then transport their goods across the land, a peninsula. And then load it on another ship. And they could save weeks and weeks of sailing. They had to unload, carry it over, and then reload it. But they could save weeks and weeks of sailing. Because otherwise you have to go all the way around. You can look on a map and see where that was. They tried to actually build a canal all the way through. <laughs> from from the one sea to the other. And it never got finished. Because they're going through hard rock. I was talking to somebody this morning about a hard rock ship canal that they want to build. You wouldn't, you'd be surprised where that is. I'm not going to mention where that is. <laughs> but they have to go through solid rock. Well, we're a lot better at that engineering now. But what I also talked about this morning is how we learned lots of things way back in our history. You know, the Romans knew how to pour cement that got stronger and stronger over the years. If it started to crack, it would heal itself. They knew how to do that. What 2,000 years ago, some of the cement structures, four-story cement structures they built back then, they are still standing today. Phenomenal. Now, people today are starting to learn how to do that. But for, for centuries, it was lost. We didn't know how to do that. Well, they, they were trying to figure out how to carve right through solid rock. Now, they mined that whole mountain out of, the, out of existence. But they got all the gold and the silver and any other minerals they could get. But uh, that was hydraulic mining. They knew how to do that. Now, we have tools to do that with today that are phenomenal. And, and the idea of carving 50 miles of canal or more, I'm not sure what the distance is. I'll have to look that up so I have that in my mind. But they want to carve it through solid rock. And, and we know that they have already made tunnels through solid rock. I, I have friends who worked on these nuclear-powered tunneling machines. 
<laughs> to solid rock for thousands of miles in the United States. Those tunnels actually exist. You can drive semis into them. It's not a conspiracy theory. You you can actually see these machines. <laughs> Elon Musk, I, I know he was trying to buy one. <laughs> I don't know if he ever did. I don't know where he wanted to build uh, his tunnels. He may be building tunnels now. I don't know if he got permits to do what he wanted to do. I doubt he did. But uh, he definitely was in the market for one of those machines. And they've been all over. That's how we got the channel and all this stuff. So the technology is amazing. But we can lose all that overnight. And and societies don't know the genius of society. How you make, how you produce geniuses. Uh, now, you can produce tyrants. I know how to do that. You get men who desire power. That's why I say, if you create offices of power, men who seek power will seek office. If you create offices of service, real service, men who seek service will seek those offices. And what we've been doing for the last 100 years in America and most countries is creating offices of power. And those offices of power are now being exercised authority one over the other. Just saw clips of a, a lawyer I know of. I've known of him for years and years. He's a European lawyer. He's actually knows several languages and he's uh, very knowledgeable in law. And he's pointing out the leaders of numerous countries have gone to the World Economic Forum and been educated, took classes. That's a matter of record, took classes on how to form the new world order. And they have an outline outline of what kind of people they're looking for. And, and Trudeau, of course, is one of those guys who's taken this. And, and yeah, he is treasonous. And he is, you know, so I, I saw Canadians really upset that his he's turning Canada over to the new world order. And, and that they stand up in a forum and they complain about it. I saw other people from Belgium complaining about the stuff that they see going on. And somebody wanted me to be on some talk deal with X uh, space. And, of course, my policy on that will be, uh, you want me to talk to somebody on this group or that group or be interviewed or be a guest on a show, you guys have to set it up. You know, check with me about the time. If we if we pick a time, we can pick several times, figure out which one, and then I will try to make myself available for whoever that is that you want me to talk to, and I'll, I will talk to them. But I, 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 there's something in me to resist that I'm going to go out and try to find. I, that's not my job, at least not right now. It could change. <laughs> It's your job if you want me to talk with them, debate them, whatever, explain things to them. You set it up. And go through your ministers, the tens, hundreds, and thousands. And uh, and connect with me and we'll set it up. And then we'll talk about what everybody's missing. But everybody's seen the tyranny coming. They're, they've been seen for, I've been watching it for 20, 30 years. People talking about loss of liberty, loss of rights, loss of choice. Of course, COVID was a prime example of that. 
But the solution has always been before us. It's in the gospel. It's in the Old Testament. But if you ask 90% of the people that I know, well, maybe the percentage is a little bit better for the people I know, because I know people a lot of other people don't know. <laughs> but generally speaking, 90% of the people on the street, they haven't got a clue what the Old Testament was about. Most modern Christians don't know what the early Christians were doing. If they were doing what the early Christian was doing, the New World Order wouldn't stand a chance. If all the people who say they are Christians were actually doing what Christ and the early Christians were doing, the New World Order would not stand a chance. And we're not talking about 50% of the people. I mean, you don't even need... Say 20% of the people saying that they were Christian, if 20% of the people saying they were Christian were actually doing what the early church was doing, the New World Order wouldn't stand a chance. But you don't have that. You have most Christians doing what the Pharisees were doing. And of course now our study, you know, we've got three hours in this program, so our study on on this, we're going to get to chapter 2, I think. Actually, I didn't even look to see... You know, I, I've done an outline on chapter two, <laughs> and I'm expanding my one on chapter one, which we did this morning. But uh, yeah, chapter two is pretty short; it's half the size of chapter one. That's one of the things about John is the way they break up the chapters. They do; they've done this with several of the other gospels, where you know, one one chapter is <laughs> twenty verses long, and the other one is sixty verses long, <laughs> like. You gotta break this up. So what I've been doing is going through and putting little headings in there so that we, and, and which is gonna be a part of an outline. And, uh, it takes a lot of work and we're, we're gonna be, uh, expanding on this constantly. Like in the morning show I expanded on, you know, the side notes during the show. I've expanded on the side notes just a few minutes before this show began. As far as chapter 1 of John is concerned. But as we go through John and we look back uh, at these first chapters, I'm sure we're going to add to them because it's all connected. And we're going to try to reveal what all these other churches aren't telling you. So you can do something about their loss of freedom, loss of rights, loss of uh, life, you know, millions of people are already dying. Somebody was complaining to me about the genocide in the Gaza Strip. And, you know, it's terrible. The, the, the people, there are innocent people dying in the Gaza Strip. That Israelis will admit it, everybody will admit it, everybody can see it. Innocent people, because children are dying. Of course, Children died when Hamas attacked Israel. But I don't know anybody who sees what's really going on behind the scenes. And they want to, you know, they want to demonize Hamas. Easily done. Hamas does some pretty terrible stuff. Pretty terrible people in Hamas. And they, other people want to demonize the Israelis. The Zionists. And... Some of them are doing pretty bad things. I haven't yet found out anybody who's caught on. I talked to one minister about this. At least one minister. 
just a day. What is really going on behind this? I don't have any proof yet. But I didn't have any proof about COVID when I first heard about COVID. But I knew there was something wrong here. And it didn't take me long till I found out what was going on. And I have not yet revealed what was really going on and where it all started. I mean, you can take this back, uh, Dr. Martin. He takes it back to 2019, 2015. He's showing a trail of events that looks like this has been a plan for quite some time. What we have seen unfold here. Most people don't know. Most people who are a part of it don't even know what they're doing. And, of course, what did Jesus say? Forgive them, they know not what they do. So I don't need to demonize Hamas. Hamas is what Hamas is. I don't need to demonize the Israelis or the Zionists or the bankers or the Rothschilds or any of these things. I deal with people on an individual basis. And if you're going to deal with evil, that's what you're going to need to do. Because it's it's going to be the individual that is going to obtain power over you. You know, whether you're you're going through the gates, you know, though you have to be able to say, I'm not the droid you're looking for, and they will say you can go by. <laughs> you're, you're going to need that kind of power. But it isn't a power that you possess. It's a power that walks with you because you walk with the truth. And that's what I see in most people. They're not looking for the truth. But they don't understand what the gospel of the kingdom really is all about. And so that's why we're going to be showing you what the gospel of the kingdom is all about. And one of the ways to do that is to put everything, to put everything in the context of the times that the gospel is talking about. And of course, some of the things that we read in the gospel is going to be talking about Moses. And some of the things that we are going to be talking about in the gospel of the beloved disciple, is going to be Abraham. Or even Melchizedek. Or Nicodemus. Who is Nicodemus? Why is Nicodemus only mentioned in the Gospel of John? Very important person. Been around for uh, uh, the whole time of the Gospel. He was still around at the time of the fall of Jerusalem. But none of the other Gospels mention him. Or do they? <laughs> well, some of you have been listening. Uh, I've already had some pretty good hints on that. I've kind of laid it out. But we're going to be seeing all that. And, well, occasionally I'll bring up things I really don't know the answer to. But I, I, I put little pins in things. And then later on, maybe we'll find somewhere where this is connected to something else. And we'll put it into place. But I'm not afraid of looking at something I don't really understand and pondering it and praying about it and wondering about it. And some of my conclusions may not be 100% accurate. But the overall theme of what I'm talking about, I find from one end of the Bible to the other. And the, the theme is, is the government of God and the governments of men. 
You know, the city of Cain and Nimrod and Pharaoh and Sodom versus whatever Abraham was doing, whatever Moses was really doing, and what the Israelis should be doing, and the people of Gaza should be doing, and the people of America should be doing, and the people of Australia should be doing. And then when you start seeing what that is, you can start doing it. You don't need the majority of the people of Australia or the majority of the people of Gaza to do it. You just need to do it. But in order to do it, in order to even see it, to know what to do, you have to think differently. And thinking differently sometimes means you have to realize that what you were told before and accepted as true ain't so. So we'll read a couple of verses here. And, and actually in, in some of this I could maybe put in a few other headings and we'll just look at that. I'll make some notes and I can cut out some of the stuff that so that we'll shorten up this recording. I have three hours to make it, but I like to keep it down to two hours by the time I'm done. So anyway, we, we got to John 1, barely got to it. And, and since I did that, I've actually added, uh, although I don't see it added. <laughs> see. Oh, there, there it is. Um, under the uh, liberty as the son of God. Th- th- that was an amazing, if, if you read that verse, you know, which it starts in verse 12. And it's worth, since we don't have 50 verses in here, we'll just go through that again. Verse 12 of John 1 says, But as many as received him, referring to the Messiah, the Christ, which is the Logos of God made flesh, the Word of God made flesh, to them gave he power. Now, we talked about that. Exousia. Exousia. Uh, it's two Greek words. It means the right to choose. He's going to give the r- power of the right to choose to them. Why that God gave us the power of choice when he created us? Well, he did, but, you know, from time to time you lose the right to choose. <laughs> and we know how you do it. Peter will tell us, John will tell us how we lose the right to choose. We go under, Paul tells us, we go under the authority of others. How do we go under the authorities of others? One way is to apply for their benefits. Or, you know, our parents can sell us into bondage. The Israelites were in bondage for 400 years because the brothers of Joseph all went into bondage. They had to go into bondage. And they tell you why in Exodus. I've never heard a priest or a minister tell me why they had to go into bondage. They actually try to make you think that they went into the bondage of Egypt. God arranged it so they would go into the bondage of Egypt so he could save them when the famine came. That's why they went into the bondage of Egypt. To save them from the famine. Well, wait a minute. (laughs) No, that's not what the Bible says. Where do you get that? Reuben tells us. We're going into the bondage of Egypt because we would not hear the cries of our brother. 
<laughs> That's why they went into the bondage of Egypt. Because they sold their brother into bondage. If you're in bondage today, how did you get there? Did you sell somebody into bondage? Did you join a system where you could exercise authority one over the other? I mean, you might have done it in ignorance. You say, well, I didn't understand. But really, you know, why didn't you understand? Well, maybe you were a little bit in darkness. Now, I don't, I'm not in charge of the light and how it's distributed around, but, you know, and I'm not judge. But we certainly shouldn't be blaming it on everybody else. We should take the responsibility we should have seen. We should have understood. And then we would have had, made a different choice. Maybe earlier in our life or whatever. But we didn't. We have to admit that. We we made mistakes. And take the responsibility of that. Wherever that puts us. So he says, but to them that really receive the logos of God through Christ, the word of God through Christ, through the Holy Spirit, is going to be given the power of choice. To become the sons of God. Now, remember the parables about the sons. Who is the son? Is it the one who does the will of the Father? Or the one who doesn't do the will of the Father? Well, the son is the one who does the will of the Father. The one who doesn't do the will of the Father, he becomes a stranger. So your choice is to become sons of God. And do the will of the Father. Your choice isn't just to do anything you want. The choice is to do the will of the Father. And to become the Son, that has to be what you want to do. And occasionally, it may be something you don't want to do. But you know you have to do it because you know it's the will of the Father. Just like we saw with Christ when we went through Matthew in the Garden of Gethsemane. He didn't really want to do that. But he wanted to do the will of the Father more. That's the choice that we can be given if we will receive the logos of God, the right reason of God, the wisdom of God. We talked about this this morning and this idea of the logos or word of God and wisdom are connected. One was used in the Old Testament. The other one was used in the New Testament. Now, logos can be a lot of things and used a lot of different ways, but it's a very specific word. And again, I say, it's not rima, which is another Greek word that can be translated into word, but logos is a very specific word, which is why we put a whole article up. But that's what we, that's one of the big takeaways from The first chapter. The second big takeaway from the chapter is that John was not the Messiah. He was not Christ. He he wasn't Isaiah. He wasn't Elijah. But he said what Isaiah said. He actually even said what Elijah said. So he was like them. A messenger like them. But he was saying constantly, Christ, Jesus, was to be preferred over him. 
and that he only baptized with water. That's another takeaway. But Jesus was the Lamb of God. And and I don't want people to read too much into that. So, especially when, when they read too much into it, that they begin to lose sight of what Jesus wants people to do. But also, we see Andrew and Simon and Nathaniel and Philip all joining with Christ to follow Christ and doing so because they believe that he is the Messiah, the anointed king of the government. Remember, at that particular time, there was no king in Jerusalem. There was a Roman protector, but nobody could figure out who should be on the throne. And, you know, so there was a Roman governor in charge of Roman governor's stuff. But we've already said why Rome was there. Israel wasn't conquered yet. Israel did not belong, or Judea did not belong to Rome. Uh, They had a right to be there, but they were like an international peacekeeping force. They hadn't possessed it. And, you know, this is what you may see in what we call Israel today, is that they may want to take possession of the Gaza again. And there may be a good reason to do that, and there may be a very bad reason to do that. If they do it for the bad reason, they may be in trouble. But I'm not going to go into the details of that. Because, see, again, it's about individuals. You know, a lot of people may be doing things for the right reason. but They may be doing the wrong thing for the right reason. But if you do the right thing for the wrong reason, you don't get the benefits. <laughs> Even though you did the right thing, but you did it for the wrong reason, it ruins the benefit of that. All these things make a difference. And that's only determined on an individual basis. Don't think of people as members of whole giant groups and nations. Deal with the individual and look at them with the eyes that God gives you. Because only then will you be able to make the right choice led by the Holy Spirit. So anyway, those are some of the things. So Jesus was the Messiah. John the Baptist was not. And whoever is this author of John is certainly trying to impart that idea to us. But now as we begin John 2, I can see why they made a chapter here. They could have made two chapters out of the first one in my opinion. But this is where they have their first chapter break that they add in. It begins with, On the third day, there was a marriage in Canaan of Galilee. Third day of what? (laughs) Third day of the week? Is this the third day after the baptism of Christ? Uh, But for some reason, they say on the third day, there was a marriage in Canaan of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. So, disciples are already picked. At one time, I had the impression that this was before he began his public ministry. 
the way I was taught originally. But here, he's already got disciples. Jesus is like 30 years old and he's now just picking a few disciples. How many disciples did Jesus have? Some will say 12. Well, there were 12 apostles. But a disciple is just a student. And we know he had 70 that he picked to send out. Well, those 70 were disciples. There were other disciples that walked away from him. We never even knew what their name was. They never came back. There was the 120 in the upper room, and those were representing 120 families in the upper room. There were thousands of people that showed up at Pentecost, that showed up at the Feast of Loaves and Fishes, that that got the baptism of Christ. Well, these were all learning from Jesus. So in one sense, they're disciples too. Disciple just means student, people learning. But we know he had at least some disciples when this marriage took place. And it was at Cana in Galilee. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto them, They have no wine. Jesus said unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. So that that phrase of Jesus talking to his mom, <laughs> even saying woman, uh, that that's kind of an interesting way to talk about your mom. But he says, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Sounds like I'm not really supposed to be doing this yet. But it's an interesting thing. It appears that his mother wanted him to do it and just took it for granted he would do it and turned to the servants and said, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. How does Mary, his mother, have the power to tell these servants what to do at this wedding feast. So, who's getting married? They don't really tell us. And if you knew in tradition that marriages, a lot of times, were, they actually had a marriage ceremony and a celebration when somebody was simply betrothed. That could be what they what we see here referred to as a marriage. Because when you were betrothed, that was the beginning of the contract of marriage. You might not be consummating it for a year or two years or three years, but you could be betrothed. Some young girl could be betrothed when she's ten years old by their customs. And they would have a big celebration. They'd have wine there and everything. So, but nobody really gives us that information in, in this gospel. Or in the other, other three. So we don't really know. And so, maybe it's not that important. But I'm just pointing out that there are things, there's gaps here. We don't want to fill them in with our own imagination. But there, this is an important wedding. Jesus' mother seems to have authority over the servants. And even though they're out of wine, she knows that her son can do something about that. So, 
It seems like she knows he's this miracle worker. How does she know it? Well, there's lots of extra, you know, the lost gospels and all this that talk about Jesus' younger life and many miracles in his younger life. But they didn't get into Eusebius' Bible. It doesn't mean they're not true. doesn't mean because they've come down to us in the ages doesn't mean they are true. But we don't know a lot of things. You know, I just heard somebody the other day talking about Pontius Pilate being a fictional character. Well, at one time people thought that because we couldn't find hardly any evidence that Pontius Pilate ever even existed. Because when he got into trouble with Tiberius and then with Caligula, his records diminished greatly from the Roman record. But he did exist. And we know that now because of all kinds of archaeological and, and texts and materials and everything. We have the gospel of Pontius Pilate. <laughs> they call it, they call it the, uh, let's see if I got that right. It's, it's called the Acts of Pilate. It's not called the Gospel of Pilate, but they have another name for it, which is the Gospel of Nicodemus. And you can actually read that at Preparing You. Uh, I, I'm going to expand on it more and put in more of the actual uh, text and references to it, but Ed, I'll have to do that in my spare time. But, uh, yeah, we have that. And we're not going to use it as proof, but sometimes it will help us paint a clearer picture. It has to fit in with the Gospels, and that's very important. But that's why I'm pointing some of the nuances of this this deal with Mary. And in verse 6, he says, And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. That's measurements. But these are water pots of stone. And it specifically says stone. It doesn't say clay. Which I thought was kind of, you know, a water pot of stone. That's a big deal. Because uh, it's hard to make a water pot of stone, especially that size of three, two or three firkins apiece. Those are big. Those are expensive, to say the least. So whoever's house they're at, uh, whoever owns those, is probably well to do. Jesus says unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast. Now we're governor of the feast. We don't know if that the reason he calls him governor is because he was just in charge of the feast and making sure this feast went on. Or that he actually had a governor, a ruler's position. But we know that if those pots were made out of stone, they probably filled them up by going and getting, you know, clay vases, filling them up with water, and then carrying them over and pouring in the stone vases. Because they would have been almost too heavy to carry. Because of the two or three firkins and because they were made out of stone. But I'll tell you that and I've talked about this in one of the last shows. We have artifacts from that era and even from long before that era 
that are stone pots. Pots made out of literally crystal stone. And they're smoothed down till they're almost, you know, paper thin. Almost like cardboard thin. I mean, you can see through them. Because, you know, they can't see through all of them. But it's translucent enough you can see through part of it. Because they're made out of crystal. Uniform. Nobody knows how they made those. You would be hard-pressed to make those on a machine today with precision grinding machines. And they're just smooth as glass. And they're made out of quartz. And they, they've they got quite a few of them. They're not pottery. They're stone. And nobody really knows how they made them without machines. Because we, like I say, we'd be hard-pressed to make them today out of machines. But it's part of our history we've lost. We don't know. We don't know how they made it. And there may be a remarkable way they made it. There may be other reasons why they had it. I'm not saying aliens made it. <laughs> I'm saying that they exist. And they're around. You can see them on display. There's quite a few of them. Not there. But these were pretty big with two or three firkins apiece. And so they filled them up with water to the brim. And he said, go draw out of them. And they did. And and they bear it to the governor of the feast. And when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom. And saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth the good wine. And when men have well drunk it, then that which was is worse, not as good, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. And so, according to the governor of the feast, this wine was the best wine he had. At least at that feast, maybe I suspect it's the best he ever had. <laughs> but I'm prejudiced. So, that's fascinating. To me, that's fascinating. And he didn't know where it came from. Now, now the servants know, well, this was water a few minutes ago. <laughs> we filled the vases ourselves with water. We don't know how it became wine. But they know who told them to do what. So this is this is going to set up in the rumor mill a lot of stuff is going to be passed around about this event. Of course, we're in Cana of Galilee, so we're over in Galilee. We're not, you know, downtown Jerusalem. But a lot of people are going to. This is evidently a big feast in a well-to-do house. Of a wealthy man. And this news is going to get out. Because the servants are going to share this with everybody. And there are servants there. From a lot of other households. Of wealthy people. Because this is clearly a wealthy house. And a wealthy bridegroom. And so all the guests have come with their servants. And their servants are all going to be talking with one another. And the news is going to get out that somebody 
can do miracles. So in verse 11 it says, The beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. So of that, one of the key words there is he manifested forth his glory. That is not well understood. What do you mean glory? And I said that this morning, that we're going to end up exploring words like glory and words like grace. And But I'm just making note where we see that somehow this miracle manifested forth his glory. And his disciples believed. Remember when we were talking this morning about Nathaniel? Believed because Jesus had seen him under the tree. The fig tree. And he says, oh, I believe. And he says, you believe because I tell you I saw you under the fig tree. <laughs> That's it. That's why you believe. You're going to see a lot greater stuff than this. And when he said that, I don't think he was talking about water into wine. But now there's going to be a lot of people out there that listen to what, you know, these recordings and they're going to say, oh, they that's just fiction. That's just made-up stories. Like Noah Harari, I'm sure he would say. They're just making up stories. They're great stories, but it's just made-up stories. Of course, he thinks you, the fact that you have inalienable rights is just a made-up story. You know, when I heard Noah, you can hear him giving that speech, that governments, having governments and having inalienable rights, these are just made-up stories that men made up. That you got your rights from God. It's, it's a, they're powerful stories, but there is no God. He just thinks they're all made up. Him and his husband think that. <laughs> you know, Noah Harari thinks that we should get rid of more than two-thirds of the people in the world. We don't need them. We only need the elite. He's all for that. So was the serpent in the garden. And that's what I was reminded of whenever I hear him talk. I haven't heard that kind of logic since the garden. <laughs> so, but he's he's the darling of the new world order of the World Economic Forum, which has been around for, what, 45, 50 years, maybe more. I'm trying to think of when it started. It started probably in the 50s. Or at least that version of the idea of having a new world order. Rome was the new world order of its day. And it was competing against places like Parthia. And of course, China was way on the other side. But now, all these countries, China, what used to be called Parthia, Israel, they're on a day-to-day -day news. And you can fly there, depending on what vehicle you take, you can fly there in no time whatsoever. So the world has shrunk down with this transportation. But we don't know the solution to what we see happening. And all these people out there, Jordan Peterson, uh, I could go down a long list of people who see the problem. And there are some people out there trying, you know, like McCullough saw the, you know, his expertise is the medical sciences and virology. And he sees there's a problem here. Uh, 
Dr. Malone sees there's a problem here. Uh, Dr. Martin sees there's a problem here. But who has the solution? It's great they're pointing out the problem. And some of these guys are actually pointing out very important elements of the problem. But to know what the solution is, we have to know what the real problem is. And the real problem is that we were cunningly deceived, cunningly deceived into believing a lie. That if you were really listening to the Holy Spirit, and some of you were, you would know this is a lie. There, this is fear porn. <laughs> this news media report is fear porn. You would know that. The whole Ukraine thing, you know, there's something wrong here. There's something fishy here. And I, I know people that are sucked into the idea, we need to defend the Ukraine against those Russian aggressors. And of course, I'm not saying that Russians aren't aggressors. I'm not saying that Hamas is not an aggressor. I, I certainly can't say that the people of Israel don't have a right to defend themselves. But I'm not sure that that's really what's going on behind the scenes any more than, you know, the doctors who said, oh, well, you know, there is this virus going around and it is making people sick and we need to do something to try to protect people. All that is true. And you should have the right to do what you need to do to protect the weak and vulnerable in your society, whether it's a disease or a terrorist or... Whatever, you, you, you should have the right to do what you need to do to protect the innocent. But we saw them taking away that right. And, and hiding the information that would help protect the weak and vulnerable amongst you. You know, and, you know, and it appears that ivermectin could help. And, and, and by the data, they come in. A lot of people would not have got us sick had they had taken ivermectin. A lot of people would not have got us as sick if they had sufficient vitamin D in their body. And, and a lot of people would not have gotten sick if they could have taken some of these other remedies. But, and, and there's nothing wrong with taking those remedies. As long as it doesn't distract you from seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And often those remedies can, but that's not the fault of the remedy. It's a fault of our thinking. And that's why repentance is so important. Because we know that some people, if you properly believe. You know, I just shared something on Facebook. About the resonant frequency in DNA. And I've been studying resonant frequencies for 50 years and more. And understanding their importance since I was a small child. That everything has a frequency. And we all have frequency. And that frequency, certain frequencies can do you harm. But every one of you is a frequency generator. And your body is designed to generate frequencies. And confusion of frequencies is not good for your body. But, you know, what, what am I going to teach you? Are we going to make a machine that can produce the frequency that you need 
in order to protect your body? Well, actually, I know how to do that. <laughs> but what you really need to do is know how to generate the frequency in yourself. And, of course, that's what the Holy Spirit does. That is what the Logos is all about. In the beginning, God spoke and things began to form according to what he spoke. And, of course, speaking is frequency. Now, you don't want to create mechanical devices. I'm not saying you can't, but that is not the ultimate solution. The same as writing a, a really good constitution is the solution. I don't care how good a constitution you write. Even if you had all five precepts that were written down in Deuteronomy 17 as to what you should put in your constitution, because it tells you in there, and you had them right and you did them right, it doesn't mean that you, you've got the answer. Because the answer is from the tree of life, not from the tree of knowledge. So that if you if you wrote the perfect constitution, it's not going to guarantee your freedom. There's going to be a workaround for evil. The only guarantee is the logos of God has to be written in your heart and in your mind. And that's not going to be written in your heart and your mind by an intellectual study. The intellectual study may help you realize it's not written in your mind yet. Because if it was written in your mind now, you would be drinking better wine. (laughs) And you're not. So anyway, that was the section. And clearly, that's the wedding of Canaan section. Well, now there's another section, which I, you know, and it has several subsections on this, this chapter. And it talks about Jesus cleanses the temple. And that starts in verse 12. I'll run over here to see what's going on in the, uh, quote, well, quite a few callers. Nobody with their hand up. If somebody is going to want to have, uh, ask a question, they can push one and they can ask a question for the people who, uh, may be listening other ways and they want to call in. The number to call in is 319-527-6208. And this afternoon show, we can, we, for those of you who find people that want to be a guest on the show and you think it would be good I have a conversation with them and they want to come on the show, chances are we will schedule them for the latter part of the show. Uh, but we could schedule them for the first part of the show too if we thought they were really good guests. But we have three hour block here given to us by the station. And so we can have them call in. If I know what their number is, I can activate their mic and they can be a guest on the show. And Or I can be a guest on their show. So if you want me to talk to other people, you have to set it up and these are the tools that you have to set it up with. But anyway, uh, so I'll go back here to two and we'll continue. I'll cut some of this fumbling around out. Where did my two go? <laughs> uh, okay, here we are. Uh, so in, in the chapter two, we have this, Jesus cleanses the temple. And this is what we're, we're going to see a lot of in, in this chapter because I have so many, I've been working on so many pages. Like I just said, the idiotis page. I worked on the vow of poverty page. What, what was that all about? 
I don't even like that phrase about poverty. That, but that's the way we translate ideas today. That's not what it was really about. But such a thing existed in the time of the Levites, and we just saw them saying in chapter one, priests and Levites came out to question John, which is John the Baptist. And they came out to do it because they wanted to know what he was doing with this baptism thing. And he says, I'm just baptizing with water. This one that comes after me is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Why are they interested in that? Why are they traveling? They were sent out there to find out who this guy is. Well, we know they may not have even known that he was the son of Zechariah. They may not have known that. I mean, there's... There's no evidence right there in the gospel that they knew because they're asking, who are you? In other places, why are you doing this? Other places, they were asked, how does the kingdom work? But you have to go into all the different gospels and look at how they're treating them. Like I said, I don't believe anywhere in the gospel of John that they refer to him as John the Baptist. They refer to baptizing. But then I pointed out this morning that They were baptizing back at the temple. The ministers coming out of that temple were baptizing in Rome. They were baptizing in Corinth. They were baptizing in Galatia. They were baptizing all over the, in Ephesus. I mean, there were, we'll see later that students of John the Baptist were still baptizing in Ephesus setting up a school for disciples to teach people because disciples are students in Ephesus and then they meet and find out that there was a Jesus they didn't even know about Jesus till you know I don't know where they were <laughs> they might have been at uh, some uh some kind of kibbutz or something out in the desert, but somehow or other, that late in the game, they didn't even know about Jesus. They heard about him from Paul. And then Paul worked there at the school and, and lived with them for some time. And they began to understand about that Jesus was the one that John the Baptist had taught them about that was coming. This huge number of years that are involved here we just getting a little peek at it with the gospel. Because those guys were trained up by John the Baptist, went out, ended up in Ephesus, setting up a school in Ephesus, and they don't even know that Jesus came. The very guy that John the Baptist is saying is the one who should come after me. There was evidently interaction somewhere there before. But we do, we just don't have a record of that in these Gospels. There is some record of that and other things. But you have to be able to identify the players. But in, let's read verse 12. After this, after the incident at Canaan, he went down to Capernaum. He and his mother... And his brother, and that's his actual brothers, that's not disciples. And his disciples. See, so we know that the brethren is not his disciples, 
because they're listed separately. So he has brothers. Now, were they brothers because Mary had more children? Or were they brothers because Joseph had more children because he had a previous wife and she died and those children were grown? Well, some will say a little of both. But we, if we look at some of the external Gospels, we know that, no, wait a minute, he had older brothers. So those were by Joseph and his previous wife. But not necessarily essential, just giving you perspective. And part of this is because people will call you out on things. And you need to maybe know how those answers are uh, so that, you, you know, that they, you don't want to, you don't want to get lost in the weeds. You want to stick to the gospel. So he's got disciples, he's got his brothers and his mother. They all go down to Capernaum and they continued there not many days. And the Jews' Passover was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So now they're going up to Jerusalem for Capernaum. So it's an interesting little sidetrack that they all went to Capernaum. But it doesn't say they all went up to Jerusalem. But the Passover is coming, so they're going up to Jerusalem. Now this is really jumping along quickly in the Gospel of John. And like I said before, Matthew, Matthew didn't put everything down in order. If we're going to accept this as order, then this is happening really quickly. He went down to Capernaum not many days after the wedding. And now he's going up to Jerusalem. In verse 14 he says, And found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting and when he had made a scourge of a small cord, a whip of a small cord, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers money and overthrew the tables. So, look at that word, poured out the changers' money. Because in the other Gospels, it only talks about overthrowing the tables. And, and I've got some other words in there so you can see the different words there. Because the changers of money, that's one word. And uh, then it says, out the changers' money. And those are other words that we see in the text. You have to understand the system, and we'll maybe talk about that at another time, or or maybe I'll put more in the footnotes. I have links there to who the money changers are, because that's very important. They're, they're the porters of the temple. And, and note that there were guys who sold oxen, sheep, and doves and then there were other men changers of money sitting now 
the guys who were selling oxen, sheep, and doves, they weren't necessarily the same people. They they could have been somebody else entirely different. But altogether, there was a lot of stuff going on there that weren't wasn't supposed to go on. Because in other Gospels, they tell talk about the money changers and those sitting on the left side. So, you look at all these, you put them together, and you start to put together what was going on. And what it meant to overthrow the tables. Because the word there for tables is trapeza. And it's contracted from several other words. But still, it, it almost uh, the immediate definition is tables, but it's also translated bank in in the Gospels. Because the, today, the the tame for trapezia, the the word trapezia is still a word for bank. And as we point out, all the temples perform some sort of function like a bank in one for one reason or another. If it was for the social welfare, it was a treasury. Therefore, a bank, it would receive funds, have them on deposit. The golden calf was just a way in which to put the treasure so you, everybody could keep an eye on it. If you locked it away in bags and chests, somebody would have to count it every day because somebody could sneak in at night and slip in a bunch of gold-plated lead coins. And you thought, well, that's still gold, but you find out, wait a minute, these are fake. But if it's all in a statue, you know if somebody's been messing with it. And that's why they had the golden statues in so many of the city-states. They were called reserve funds. Now, I know a lot of you have heard this already, but you never know who's going to hear this one show (laughs) and then have to find out more about this. And that's why we explain in so many different places. But people have so many things mixed up and confused. But these tables often had consecrated loaves. What does it mean to consecrate a loaf? What does it mean to make sacred food? Why is one food sacred and another one not? And of course there's all kinds of superstition about all this. But it's actually very practical because there's a practical purpose to all of the temples. They're providing real services for the people. They're either providing those services through faith, open charity or force, fear and fealty. All kinds of people say, well, I've received Christ as my personal Savior, uh, but if I need anything, I'm going to go to men who exercise authority one over the other to get benefits at the expense of my neighbor, but I'm still a Christian. But no, you're not. As a matter of fact, you've become merchandise, which is what they're going to be talking about here in, in these verses. Because in 16 he says, And said unto them... That sold doves. Now, why didn't he say unto them that sold sheep and oxen? He's just saying unto them that sold doves. Is he, is he really talking about selling doves? Or is there another word there and that's an actual mistranslation? Well, I've talked about that in other places. I can't prove it. But I am suspicious of why he's talking to people that sold doves. And not to the people who sold oxen and sheep. <laughs> it could have something to do with epistheria or 
Etheria. You know, what, what words are we looking at? Because one has to do with seats on the left side, and the other one has to do with doves. Now, there were doves being sold, but there were also the money changers sitting. Where were they sitting? Well, according to other Gospels, they were sitting over there on the left side. And Jesus went over there and sat down too and watched what was going on. But what did he say to the men who sold doves, which is the way they've translated it? Take these things hence. Make not my father's house a house of merchandise. Which is an interesting word. Emporia. Because later on, Peter's going to talk about covetous practices making men merchandise. And there was something about the Corbin of the Pharisees and there's something about tables in the Old Testament, even in the New Testament. Paul will talk about this. Tables that are a snare. Snare for what? What do they do? How do they snare? Well, they make you merchandise. Because the tables are not righteous tables. They're unrighteous tables. They have an unrighteous system that makes the Word of God to none effect. And they make you merchandise because of what we talked about this morning. Grace for grace. Well, covetousness for covetousness. Possessiveness for possessiveness. If you want to make your neighbor merchandise for your benefit, your neighbor's labor merchandise for your benefit, you will become merchandise. What did we talk about? Why did they go into the bondage of Egypt? Reuben tells us, because you would not hear the cries of your brother. Because you sold your brother into bondage. And you wouldn't release him from the pit except to sell him into slavery. This is why we went into slavery in Egypt. This is how they made their family a family of merchandise. Because they made their brother merchandise. And they themselves became merchandise. Slaves in Egypt. And how did they do it? They coveted their brother's position. He had a position of superior. He was, you know, we've talked about Joseph. He was a smart guy. He invented, pretty much invented the Hebrew language. Amazing. And it appears he had red hair. <laughs> that, uh, there's, there's evidence that he had red hair. <laughs> and I, I can believe it. But he also was a seer. He could see things that other people didn't see. Uh, and he could, he was a smart guy. And they were jealous of the gifts that God had given him and the recognition that he got from his, his natural father. And they were willing to sell him into slavery and not hear the cries of their brother. And so they themselves went into, mer- into slavery. And then he was actually put over them. But he forgave them. Why? Because he knew grace for grace. If you are to be forgiven, you must forgive others. These principles go from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Now, could Israel have forgiven the people of the Gaza 
for what they did. Now, it wasn't all the people of Gaza. It was the Hamas who did what they did. Could they have forgiven them and taken a different tactic? Yeah. Now, what tactic should they have taken? Well, God hasn't told me. But I think he was trying to tell them. And I'm not convinced they're following the guidance of God. And they may get themselves into more trouble. Uh, the, now, I'm not saying that the, they're, they're, you know, if we're going to say oh, th- these guys are good because they're better than these really wicked guys over here. That's not actually the scale that God uses. <laughs> you have to be the way Christ said to be, the way that Moses said to be. And, and we know for a fact that in Israel today, the government of Israel today, they break every single rule that Moses ever put down as a matter of policy. Not that Hamas doesn't break every single rule. Not that all the citizens in Gaza have been breaking that, that rule. That's been a welfare state for 20 more years. You know, most of the people in Gaza are on government welfare. They, they depend upon legal charity, which has weakened those people, destroyed those people. I mean, there's some good people in there, I'm sure. Whenever you get that, you know, thousands of people, there's going to be some good people there. Like there's good people in California. and But I know that a lot of people have been moving out of California. <laughs> and some of those people moving out of California are good people. And so I have no way of doing a survey of most of the people out yet. <laughs> we talked about that. Pompeii. Pompeii was about to be destroyed. And maybe at the last minute, just like Lot, just like the story of Lot, Sodom is going to be destroyed. And Lot was taken out, you know, and, you know, his wife didn't want to leave. She wanted to go back, and that was not a good idea. But they had a power to choose. Now, Lot wasn't making the right choice, though, if we go into the details of that story, where we, if we went back to John 1, 12, God gives you the power of choice to be sons of God. If you're sons of God, you're going to do the will of the Father. And if he wants you to leave California, he'll get you to leave California. Or he'll get you to leave Salem or or Portland. But I don't want to get you to leave. I'm not telling anybody to leave. I'm telling people to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then God will tell you where to be when you need to be there. And I don't really think that Israel, I I can't prove it, is listening to God and the tactics that they've chosen to deal with this heinous criminal behavior of Hamas. This evil behavior of Hamas. I'm not convinced that they're doing the right thing. And But I, I do suspect that there are some evil people behind this. And most of the people don't see it. Again, just like they didn't see with COVID. I'm still amazed at the people who decided I'm not getting that shot. Well, have you ever gotten a flu shot? Oh, yeah, I get all my flu shots and all these, but I'm not getting that shot. And you ask them why. Well, I don't, I don't trust that. They don't always know why. And just because they refuse to get it doesn't mean that they know anything else. That may be the only thing they know. (laughs) I don't know. 
But we need to listen. The Holy Spirit will tell us what to do and how to protect ourselves. And when you really start doing what all the things that Christ said, a protection will come with the Holy Spirit that you have no control over. It's not about being clever. It's about humbling yourself before the ways of God. So anyway, didn't want his house to become a house of merchandise. Peter talks about everybody becoming merchandise through covetous practices. The Corbin of the Pharisees was making the word of God to none effect. The Corbin of the Pharisees was a system of social welfare, a system of sacrifice that was no longer a free will sacrifice, but a sacrifice of force. A force sacrifice that was dependent upon your prior registration through baptism at the temple or one of the other subordinate temples of synagogues because they sent missionaries out all over Rome, all over Judea. If you lived in Jerusalem, you probably would go get baptized at the laver to get in the system set up by Herod and the Pharisees that would take care of the needy of your society through legal charity, which would make the word of God to none effect because you're not supposed to do it through legal charity. You're supposed to do it through free will offerings. All those things are going to come together in the Gospel of John. We'll be up into chapter 10. We'll see that anybody who gets the baptism of literally of John, but it will be through the apostles, the baptism of Jesus Christ through the apostles, are going to be cast out of the system set up by Herod and the Pharisees. They're not going to get any more benefits. And people will sit there debating in their heads that if we if we say, yeah, we're going to get cast out of the system. And we don't want to, we're afraid to lose our benefits from the government temple. The same thing was going to go on in Rome. Because they had a similar temple, similar system of registration. They didn't use little white stones. They used little clay, little discs, clay discs. And we have pictures of them. You can look them up at Preparing You. And they would identify that you had this particular status in their system. You could get free bread or free wine or free cheese. They gave away a lot of stuff, free money. And you would have to, you know, probably have to, reg- if you moved around much, and people didn't move around a lot, there were some people who moved around a lot, you would have to register with a particular temple or its subsidiary. Synagogues were registered with the temple. Not all synagogues. The, many of the Nazarene synagogues had nothing to do with the temple. There were other people who weren't even maybe Nazarene that still wouldn't have anything to do with registering for those benefits. Because they saw that as a covetous practice. They knew that you were only going to get benefits from the temple because the temple was forcing the offerings of the people. And we knew from Proverbs you weren't supposed to do that. That's the one purse they talk about in Proverbs. That's the dainties of rulers. If you be a man of appetite for benefits, for the the dainties of rulers, men who exercise authority, put a knife to your throat because he 
serves you deceitful meats. Which we we just saw with all deceivableness and, and deceitful meats. That that's what you do read in Proverbs is deceitful meats, the dainties of rulers, which is also the rewards of unrighteousness, which is also called the wages of unrighteousness. And uh, we're not supposed to desire those benefits because they're covetous practices. They they will put scales on your eyes so you will not see clearly. And so Jesus is explaining all this. That he doesn't want you to be merchandised. In verse 17 he says, And his disciples remember that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. And then in verse 18, Then answereth the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? You know, why can you do this? Why why are you... This is early on, just right after the wedding feast, according to what we're reading here. Now, we don't know necessarily exactly when all this is taking place. But it seemed that, according to the way the gospel is written, that this is all pretty close events. We don't... And, uh, but there were already miracles. He just picked these disciples. So this sounds like pretty early in Christ's ministry. That he's already going into the temple and casting out the money changers. But they talk about the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. What do they mean? The zeal, uh, zealous is what? The word there is in the Greek, and it's probably from an Aramaic word, but it it's translated zeal six times, but it's also translated envy and indignation and fervent mind and jealousy and even emulation, excitement of the mind, ardor, fervor of spirit. And so, what what does he mean? That the the zeal is eating me up. Well, I I can't tell you for sure, but ponder this. Is it is it you know whose zeal? And his disciples remembered that it was written, "The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up." The emotion of the house. The the zeal of the house is like the the emotion, the excitement, the fervor of the house is eating me up. And this is why I warn people, you know, about the charismatic movement and people getting all excited and all worked up. And you know, God may get you worked up from time to time, but I think what I have my observation is is that when people are getting all worked up and getting all excited and getting all emotional. They're often losing sight of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is not emotion. And, and we, there's lots of things. I could go through a dozen quotes. Maybe I'll look some up and put them here in a footnote. Note to self. <laughs> but it's a still small voice. That's not an emotional voice. That's not all excited and all worked up and, you know, charismatic and all this stuff. It's a still small voice that guides us. It's not the thunder. It's not the excitement. 
It's not the loud music. That's not gonna, that's not gonna generate the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, that will interfere with the Holy Spirit. What the Holy Spirit is, is, what did we say earlier in this show? I won't mention this all the time, but since this show seems to be talking about it, I got this message just before the show came on too, so we'll, we'll kind of put, I don't know how often we'll revert back to it. But we need to learn the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Are those real exciting and emotional, you know, with lots of drums and trumpets and all that stuff? Is the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb a still, quiet melody played in every cell of your body? Is is that what we should be seeking or hoping for or praying for. Because the zeal of men often becomes a noise in our head and keeps us from that still small voice so that we don't even hear it. And we don't want that. But that, like, we'll go back to that verse 18. So enough said on that right now. But ponder that. Ponder meditation because the meditation is quieting down all those other noises in your head. That's the idea of learning how to do that. So that you wait upon the Lord and let the Lord set the tune and melody of your heart. Because you don't know who to love, who to care for. You, you, you can't make that decision. Only God can make that decision for you because... He's giving us the choice to do the will of the Father. To be sons of God. He's not giving us... Of course, we have the choice. We think we have the choice to decide whether to accept God or not. No Harari says, well, you can believe these stories. They're powerful stories. But they're just stories. You don't have to believe these stories. You can do away... You can do away with the idea of God according to Noah's, Noah Harari. You don't need that. You can be gods. I mean, that's what he says. He actually says that in other places. I tell you, the guy, <laughs> I, I'm not going to say he's Satan, <laughs> but he sounds a lot like him. <laughs> and like I say, he's the darling of the World Economic Forum. But we don't want to hate that World Economic Forum. We don't want to hate Klaus Schwab or Noah Harari. We want to love our enemy if they are our enemy. And they kind of seem like that. I think that the enemy of about two-thirds to three-fifths of the world population, maybe four-fifths of the world population, maybe more. But we, our hate is not going to stop them. It's the power of God that's going to stop them. And we want the power of God flowing through us. We have to stop judging others. Doesn't mean we can't see that this sure looks like evil to me. But it isn't going to be by our power and might that we stop them. It's by our repentance, turning around our thinking and letting the Spirit of God sing in our hearts now that's gonna maybe look in some cases that'll look a lot like courage cause 
you know, they're coming for you. <laughs> they, they, evil, if evil saw all those who are waking up, they're going to try really hard to put you to sleep again. What, what we want to do is be prepared to receive the Holy Spirit into our hearts. So, in verse 19, Jesus answered and said unto them, who were just asking, you know, how is it that you do this? And he's giving them the sign. He's telling them what the sign will be. He said, destroy this temple. In three days I will raise it up. Now, of course, they're looking around and the only temple they see is this stone temple built by Herod. Now, he said he's going to destroy the temple. He didn't say that. He said, destroy this temple. In three days, I will raise it up. So he's saying, a temple, this temple, will be destroyed. You will destroy this temple. You destroy this temple. In three days, I will raise it up. He's talking about himself. Because you're a temple, I'm a temple, everybody's a temple. Remember that the idea, the concept of this word temple that we see, you know, it's it's from original words, it, whether it's in the Hebrew or in uh, the Greek. This idea of temple was an area, like the Temple of Janus, was an area. They put a fence around it, they put two gates. The, this temple was an area. So, He's talking about the temple as being you. If you're a walking, talking, breathing temple, then wherever you go, you can bring the Holy Spirit with you if the Holy Spirit is dwelling in your temple. How do you get the Holy Spirit dwelling in your temple? Now, many people have dreams. Many people have visions. All of us see somewhat of the truth that other people may not see. We don't want to take pride in that. We don't want to think that we're special. Now, because we want to think of everybody as special, because Christ came that we all might be saved. We have to come with that same spirit. So we're not condemning anybody. We're not putting ourselves over anybody. And that's what happens when you start thinking of people as the Jews, or the blacks, or the Chinese, or the Japanese, or the Russians. Or the communists, or the Democrats, or the Republicans. Those are all groups. And they're, they're pretty much full of all kinds of people. Bags of people, so to speak. We don't want to think of people as parts of groups. We want to think of people, because there was a Sanhedrin that was out to kill Christ, but there were men in the Sanhedrin who followed Christ. So we don't want to be judging people because of the group that they're in. The world wants you to judge everybody by the group. That's that's the big philosophy we see today. Is that you're judged by your group. That's the reverse of what we should be doing. So that I'm pointing that out so that we don't do that. We don't put people in groups. And it isn't because some groups are really bad Got a lot of bad people in That That isn't the problem. It's that we don't have the Holy Spirit in us. And the Holy Spirit may come into us and show us some things. and then that. But if we don't do things according to the, what the Holy Spirit is showing us, and we do contrary to what the Holy Spirit is showing us, the Holy Spirit might not be there anymore. 
And all those things that we was revealed to us, we will forget. We won't even remember them. They will be replaced. And if we have time, I'll, I'll talk about that after we get to through verse 25. Is that that's what's going on today. And, and the whole society is geared to replacing memories in your life. To override the 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 pins of memory in your life when you certain moments in in my life I've referred to as Kodak moments where I remember this event way back when I was a little kid when I was seven or when I was thirteen or when I was twenty and 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 there I remember them because there's pictures associated with them because I, I had a snapshot of the event. And I call it a Kodak moment. Because it's like a photograph. I can go right back to that moment. And there was some sort of revelation that took place in that moment. And I didn't necessarily know what it meant until years later. And now other people think a little bit different, but that is part of the process. You don't necessarily have it associated with pictures. You may have it associated with words or ideas and and all these things. But they're, they're markers of importance in your life. And the present society, with the media and everything else, is designed to override those memories. So you don't remember them anymore. And that, that's why I was talking this morning about the fact that you can forget the things that you once knew. So that you don't know them anymore. That can be erased out of your mind. And I'll show you the process of how that's done. But right now he's talking about this temple could be destroyed. They think he's talking about a stone building, but he's talking about himself. And we see in verse 21, the author of this gospel is telling us, but he spake to the temple of his body. See, until we said that, a lot of people might be thinking, that he's talking about the stone temple that he's standing in. But the author's telling you right here. Now, they don't explain that so clearly in every other gospel, but it's very clear here that he spoke spoke of his body as the temple. When therefore he has risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. What word? The rima that he had said or the logos he had said? Well, I'm not going to tell you. I'm just, I may put a footnote in there eventually so that people can see. But they remembered and believe because they knew that he had said this. See, when he said it, he didn't describe that the temple he was talking about was his body. He just said, destroy this temple. And some of his disciples actually thought he meant the stone temple. But the author here knows better. Now, at the time that they wrote this, they may not have known at that time. And they may have been an eyewitness to this event. Because like I said, most 
more than any other gospel, John is talking about eyewitness. The gospel of John is talking about eyewitnesses to the things that they're saying. So in verse 23, he goes on to say, Now when he was in Jerusalem, at the Passover, in the feast day, then he believed in his name, when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. So there a lot of men are seen by signs and wonders. And believing by signs and wonders, that's what he was just talking about. That Later they would remember that he had said this, and this was a prediction of his death and resurrection. And But they didn't know it at the time. So when it says, but Jesus did not commit himself unto them. What word there is commit? Well, I'll leave that off too. I won't tell you. I have it over here. Uh, on my other screen, but I haven't put it in here yet. Because I want you guys to ponder this. I don't want you testing the Holy Spirit, but I want you wondering about the meaning of this. Because Jesus is telling people things, creating memories with miracles, (laughs) because they're going to remember, my gosh, we know we put water in these vases, and now they're wine. You know, uh, there's people. This person was was covered with leprosy when they came up. We can see the skin hanging off of them. Now they're whole. This this person we know he was blind since he was born, but now he sees. So this is creating memories, and they believe by those memories, and that helps them with their unbelief. But that's not the Holy Spirit. It may give you some zeal because it's pretty impressive. But you don't want the zeal to overcome the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to be that still small voice. That's why meditation is so important. So anyway, I said that after we got to... uh, this uh, verse 25 which says and needed not that any should testify of him for he knew that was in man so the testifying of men is the information that men give to one another and explaining you know like we're going to prove that Jesus was the Messiah by what it says in the Bible but the guy says I don't believe in the Bible it's a nice story like Noah Harari says it's a powerful story but it's just a story And if what you know about Christ is just a story, then you're probably not going to hear from the Holy Spirit. (laughs) You you may be deceived by the unholy spirit and other people. And then we'll say, you know, be afraid of this. Do this. You know, come here, line up. We're going to give everybody showers. (laughs) Whatever. You you want to be listening to the Holy Spirit. 
And you don't want to take pride in the fact that maybe God has given you a dream, given you a vision. Maybe you don't understand the vision yet. Just like they didn't understand when Jesus said, destroy this temple in three days, that will raise it up. And, and if you're getting your visions with dreams, there's a lot of imagery usually involved in that. And those, that imagery may be metaphors trying to tell you about something else. You want to open up your heart to the Holy Spirit. And there's lots of things, that, you know, forgiving, giving grace to people, being long-suffering. All these things will open up your heart to that. And you will be impatient. You will be selfish. But you have to keep returning and be willing to return and willing to repent and say, you know, I screwed up. You can't be blaming it on anybody else. You know, if my wife was better, my husband was better, my kids were better, if my boss at work was better, I'd be better. No, you have to let the Holy Spirit move in you in every moment of the day. And that's quite a challenge. And not everybody's going to be able to do that all the time. I don't think anybody's able to do that all the time. Christ might have been able to. But that's that's a big question. But we're going to see more about this when we explore some of the other Gospels. But we're not going to do all that today. I did say after verse 25 I talked about it. There was a guy named Neil. I, I shared it with the minister's group. Uh, he was a doctor. And he's done a lot of study. And he's talking about how we make memories. And there are certain cells that kind of categorize our, our memories. It's in, it, they're found in the, the vicinity or within what we call the hippocampus and, uh, in our, our brains, which is right around the center part of our brain near, near the, and, and whenever we learn something new, the cells in that kind of put a pin in it. And, and we make new of those. those. Those are one of the places where we make new cells like that all the time. We don't make new cells everywhere in our brain, but we make new cells there. And, you know, cells are full of this frequency things. And, and, and so the, they're making connections in our mental tree of knowledge. They're creating the branches so that we can access information at a later time. But if, if you, if somebody does a wonder, something that startles you, remember what we said is the word that we translate wonder now in the Greek language means monster. But see, something that is a wonder, an amazing thing, a shocking thing, that's a wonder. Over a period of time, that could become a monster because monsters are a shocking thing. You know, if a monster jumps out of the closet, that's a shocking thing. So the word that once meant startling, amazing thing now could mean in today's great, a monster. But those amazing things are how your brain takes note of something. Now it makes a memory. Of something, because that was amazing. Something awakens you to something, and it's an amazing thing, and your brain makes a memory. And it will only do that 
if there are free cells in there to receive that memory and put a pin in it for the rest of your brain to record. Everything in your brain is recorded. It's not recorded like a tape machine. It's recorded in a little bit mysterious way, and I'm not going to go into that. That's That will get too distracting. But your brain is really a machine to access those memories. They're not actually stored in your brain. You, you could actually remove a person's half of his brain and he could still remember stuff that was stored in it, even though that part of his brain is gone. How does he do that? Well, because there's a connection between both sides. But you can actually sever the connection between both sides. And if he looks at a problem, a math problem with one eye, he can't solve it. If he looks at it with the other eye, he can solve it. Amazing thing, the brain. <laughs> so if he covers this eye, he can't do math. If he covers this eye, he can do the math. Because the connection between both sides of the brain are severed. So, interesting. Interesting. And just for you, the women, the connection between the left and the right side of the brain is usually stronger in women than it is in men. <laughs> but that could be a good thing. That could be a bad thing. <laughs> because that's why sometimes women are all over the place. That that ability to be all over the place sometimes is to their advantage because the more kids they have, the more important that is to them. <laughs> Where they, they can do all these different multitasking things because the connection from left and right are... But men, they have to be able to shut off one side of the brain to deal with a problem that only the other side of the brain can deal with. <laughs> so... so our good points can be our weaknesses, but they can also be our good points. It just depends on what's coming from the heart. But anyway, this doctor was discovering that these new cells, if there's inflammation in the brain, these new cells aren't created. The energy It takes energy to create these new cells. So if there's inflammation in the brain, you can't create those new Your body's going to shut down the system that's creating the new cells and you will not create the new cells. Because it's dealing, the energy in your brain is dealing with the inflammation. So you have brain fog. That's one of the big complaints with long COVID. Is that you have brain fog. There's other things that will be a part of that. But that's usually because there's inflammation in the brain. And we know that the spike protein creates inflammation in the brain. Other things can do this as well. Parasites. You know, that cause lesions in the brain, which seems to be associated with MS. All these things uh, can prevent you from rem- Alzheimer's. Th- this is a part of the Alzheimer's process. You know, a hundred years ago, hardly anybody got Alzheimer's or dementia. It was very rare. Now everybody's doing it. And you're going to see a whole lot more of that. And it's probably connected to the spike protein. But it hasn't always been connected to the spike protein. It's connected to chemicals that get past the blood-brain barrier that causes inflammation, allergy reaction, autoimmune. All these can cause inflammation in different parts of your body. Of course, inflammation in one part of your body can cause inflammation in your brain. Because it's... it the inflammation begins to contaminate your blood as your blood is trying to get rid of it. And that blood is still flowing around and it may go through the blood, 
brain barrier or the the particles you know you you start blowing holes in your intestines with the things that you eat and you get inflammation because you got food particles zooming around in your body and now with so much processed food you know there's all kinds of things going on but covid has clearly caused the spike protein seems to be very related to brain fog and brain fog is usually associated with inflammation so i shared with the ministers uh, a video on how to treat long covid and long covid is a lot of times associated with the vaccine and that so there's a lot of things you could take and somebody's already pointed out a couple of things i left off and of course some of the doctors i listened to i listened to a couple of them that i think are kind of on the ball because I couldn't spell all those multi-syllable words. So I, I took the time to make the notes. And I've created a page now. Uh, I think it's good now. Uh, is the one doctor. Although some of the information on there is from other doctors as well. But when you get COVID and a lot of other flus. And a lot of other diseases or infections. That your body begins to fight that off. It will drain your body of certain resources that are stored in the mitochondria of your body and in the cells of your body and they will become depleted. And some of the evidence of that with COVID, a lot of people lost their sense of taste. And they found out if they took zinc, the sense of taste came back. So they said, well, it was a depletion of zinc that caused a, a loss of the ability to taste things. But it isn't that you don't have zinc necessarily. It may be that you don't have zinc in the right place. So there are other things that you might have to take like vitamin Bs and and things like quercetin will help that zinc get where it needs to be in the cells. Just taking a bunch of zinc is not going to necessarily solve it because you're a very complicated creature. So these inflammations can cause this depletion If you don't get that restored, it may go on for days, weeks, months, and the healing process is going to be very slow. If you've received an injection that is producing more and more spike protein, then it can cause all kinds of problems. And and some people develop an allergy to the spike protein, to the protein, just like a peanut allergy is an allergy to the protein. And one of the harmful things about the spike protein is that it is very much like a natural protein that your body produces that is a cell signaling protein that is released in your body to signal cells that they need to reproduce to prepare something, repair something. And so that's going around and if your body is misreading the signals that these proteins are giving, not identifying them as a foreign substance, but thinking that, that your body is... They will react and they will actually create create more cells because they think they're repairing something, but they're actually clogging things and and creating more and more problems. So there's a lot of things that can go on. Then you want to harmonize your body so that these things aren't going on. And I, I don't know how to do that. I can tell you that, yeah, you may need to take some zinc and vitamin D and and and... 
you know, I have a whole list of where you can get a lot of these things from foods that you eat. But I also can tell you about how to grow those foods so that they have these things. Because a lot of, you know, you can say, well, certain vegetables, certain fruits have the, this mineral or, or, or this vitamin. But they don't always have it. Because they're often growing in a stress situation. You know, about 25 years ago, people at Azure Standards who had me up there helping them with some of the people that they wanted to counsel, they were showing me that they were, they were putting testers on plants and seeing that if, you know, potato plants, as an example, were not under stress. They could test the plant to see if it was under stress. They could test the plant to see if it was not under stress. And there was a way to tell with certain very subtle electronic electrodes that they put on the plant. If the plant was under stress, bugs would eat it up. If it wasn't under stress, the bugs would avoid it. It's it's part of the natural system, just like the natural system in your body. Most of the living things inside your body are not human. There are other bacterias living in your body as well as parasites. Some people have gotten rid of parasites and got terribly ill after the parasites were gone. When they reintroduced the parasites, the person got better. Because the parasites were actually providing a function that was protecting the body. But I don't believe that the parasite is the natural way to do that. I think there was another problem that the parasites were leaving. <laughs> And so the removing of the parasites, the other problem showed up. Reintroducing the parasites was an immediate fix, but it's not the ultimate fix. But what you want to do is bring your whole body into uniformity with what God wanted you to be in the beginning. And I don't know how to do that. I know the pathway to that is to open up your heart to the Holy Spirit. And The Holy Spirit is going to come into somebody who admits they don't know everything. Admits that they don't have all the answers. Admits the reason they don't have all the answers is they've been eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil rather than the tree of life. Admits that they have been wrong and they have done wrong and are willing to see themselves as they really are. And embrace the light that exposes their error. Whether it's the error of Balaam or the error of the Nicolaitans, which is really the same. But they're willing to see that. Now, a lot of you have begun to see that. That's great. But a lot of the people that we have to learn to minister, they haven't seen that yet. A lot of the people are out there that are complaining about the, you know, this group or that group or this thing that they're doing and this thing that they're doing and the New World Order and they're complaining about what everybody else is doing and what they need to be focused on is what they're doing or not doing. Which is why Christ said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And that's a good place to stop. (laughs) So we got the two... So anyway, I'll go back here and look and see if anybody stuck their hand up. Oh, we still got lots of callers in there. You guys have been very patient. Let's see. Uh, zinc needs to be chelated, Steve says. Uh, Steve has a lot of experience learning more and more about all this stuff. He, he knows the way of the world and he's learning the way of righteousness. 
he might eventually be a very smart guy. <laughs> but anyway, I see him in the chat room there. I'm just teasing him a little bit. And if you want me to be a guest on something, if you want me to address a particular topic as we go along, if you see things that I'm missing, you know, let me know. Uh, until then, peace on your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.